0: Hello everyone! Welcome back! This is Haunted 518, episode 7. So today I'm drinking a rather unexpected celebratory drink. I'm drinking Pompalone Sparkling Wine Cocktail. I usually don't drink wine but this flavor was too good to pass up. Blood orange spritz with hints of lime, bitters, and blood orange apparently delicately folded into a fine french wine so today i thought after a roller coaster of a week i thought it would be nice to talk about my hometown a little bit clifton park i wanted to start with an article entitled a bit of history haunted clifton park by john sharer the clifton park town historian have you ever heard unexplained noises like someone ascending the stairs have you ever misplaced something only to find it right where you first looked Have you ever felt someone's presence or glimpsed an apparition that disappears as quickly as it came? There is quite a bit of spirit activity in Clifton Park, but most ghosts seem to be friendly and some playful or mischievous. A number of ghosts haunt our town's older homes. The old Rexford House on the corner of Riverview Road and Route 146 was built by Cyrus Rexford in 1883 and is haunted by his granddaughter Holly, who married Carl Schaus. Holly was a high-spirited woman who had quite a reputation in the neighborhood. She was known to drive horses through the village at breakneck speed, hoping to be rescued by some gentleman. She lived to be 90 years old. Later, owners of the Rexford house have heard unexplained noises and sensed the presence, have heard music and dancing in a sealed-off attic room, and have put things down, only to have them reappear elsewhere in the house. A fine 19th century brick home on Riverview Road in Rexford has the ghost of a lady that died in the house in 1925. She had owned the house for many years, mostly as a widow, running the farm by herself. She first visited the new owners when they began to remodel the house in the 1980s. The workmen renovating the living room often bumped into something or someone who wasn't there. There were all kinds of problems, and the decoration became much different than was originally planned. The renovation of the room seemed to take a shape on its own. An old house on the Erie Canal, east of Visher Ferry, also seemed to have the same ghost problem. The current owners were troubled by spirits, unable to accept people with new ideas on remodeling. The ghost scare tactics, however, did not work, and both the former and present residents have learned to coexist. A farmhouse on Grooms Road, not far from the Northway, has some very active and annoying ghosts. Loud banging and cooking noises can be heard, as well as children laughing and crying. Footsteps are heard ascending the stairs. Jewelry disappears and again reappears, sometimes in different places, as though the ghost enjoys playing games with the present residents. A neighbor has mentioned that a woman committed suicide by jumping out of an upstairs window in about 1900, and that a baby once died in the house. The Lucier house on Boyack Road, owned by three generations of the same family, is abandoned now. Children have seen their long-deceased great-grandfather on the property, and a granddaughter has experienced strange things at the house, making her believe that there is a presence. Not all new houses are exempt from ghosts. The owner of a house in a subdivision near the Moe Road Farm off Moe Road has seen a Civil War soldier and a little black girl as well as a pet cat they once owned. Shortly after a new home was built on Stony Brook Drive, the owner and her children saw the apparition of a man who claimed to be a jeweler, explaining that he had buried several pieces of his inventory in his yard for safekeeping. However, he has never been able to find them. A home constructed on Englemore Road in the nineteen fifties was built on the site of an earlier home where in 1905 a woman was murdered a woman murdered her abusive husband. The newer home has plenty of spirit activity that causes books to fly off the bookcases for no apparent reason and lights to go off and on at will. A tragic death might also cause the return of the deceased. Frank and Jesse Zoller purchased Walhalla Farm on Riverview Road in Rexford in 1928. The couple ran a dairy farm and owned a herd of brown Swiss cows. In 1932, Frank Zoller was gored to death by one of the bulls. It is said that his ghost can still be seen walking Riverview Road. Ghosts do not like to be disturbed. Near our 1850s, near an 1815 farmhouse built by Abraham Best is a burial vault where the builder and his wife are interred. A psychic surprised the former owner of our house by knocking on the door and inquiring if anyone was buried on the property the psychic had not been able to sleep because something wasn't right and her dreams had led her to this house the owner checked the vault to discover that kids had broken into it and left the door open and the lid off of one of the coffins the former former owner had a bulldozer come to come in to bury the vault and make it inaccessible cemeteries of every sort dot the clifton park landscape family cemeteries with, a, with as few as two burials can be found on some of the old farms. Church, churchyards account for some of the most interesting monuments and the landscaped hills and winding path of, paths of the Jonesville Cemetery reflect the rural cemetery movement of the 19th century. In Victorian America, cemeteries were treated as parks and it was common to find families picnicking among monuments. Next, I wanted to tell you guys about a pretty gruesome story that happened in a house that I grew up driving by and actually being afraid of that I don't think most people know about these days. It's the Bell quadruple murder suicide, which happened on May 1st in 1967. I'm going to actually read you the newspaper article from the Schenectady Gazette from the next day. It was a front page story on May 2nd, 1967. The article is accompanied by a fairly gruesome picture of men carrying out a body in a body bag. So I will post that on our social media. The title of the article is Mrs. Bell Murdered Family, Then Self. An attractive mother described by neighbors as quiet but friendly, fatally shot her husband and their three children, then killed herself in the in the family home near Clifton Park. State police determined yesterday afternoon. Captain S.A. Chieko, head of the Bureau of Criminal Investigation Unit at Loudenville, said Mrs. Marie Bell, 31, shot her husband, Roy Joseph Bell, 33, and children sometime during the weekend in their two-story frame house off Route 146, just east of Route 9. Their bodies were discovered about 9 p.m. Sunday in the three bedrooms of the home. All members of the family were clad in pajamas. The three children who attended the Shenandoah Central School in Clifton Park were Roy Joseph Jr. 13, Cheryl Jean 11, and Lynn Marie 7. Captain Chieco said autopsies performed earlier yesterday determined that Mrs. Bell fired the weapon, a three fifty seven caliber Magnum revolver, which was found in the couple's bedroom. He said there was no evidence of a struggle. State police hinted that a note was found, but under law are unable to reveal the, con- the contents. No one in the quiet residential neighborhood reported hearing shots during the weekend. Many of the residents termed the Bells a happy family and expressed shock over the shooting. Mr. Bell was employed by Bear Manning Corp. in Waterville. He had worked there since 1956 as a maintenance man in the Land and Building Department where his co-workers described him as a fine worker, popular with everybody. The tragic discovery was made by state police from the Malta substation about 9 p.m. Sunday. They were called in to investigate when the family did not respond to telephone calls and were not seen around the premises, although the Bell's two autos were parked in the garage and driveway, authorities said. Paul Parent of West Crescent, who was married to Belle's sister, went home went to the home Sunday evening, looked into the first floor of the two-story dwelling, and asked the next door neighbor, George Bloodgood, to summon state police. Parent apparently became alarmed that the family was not about, although their autos were parked on the property. State police said that when they arrived at the scene at about 9 p.m., the house was secured and focusing their flashlights into the kitchen window, they spotted evidence of bloodstains around the room and then forced their way into the home. State police found the five bodies in the four upstairs bedrooms. In one bedroom, seven-year-old Lynn Marie was found with two large bullet wounds. In another bedroom, Roy Joseph, 13, lay mortally wounded from a single round. And the father and Cheryl Jean, 11, were discovered sprawled on the floor. Cheryl Jean was killed with a single wound while the the husband and father was shot three times. One of the heavy rounds struck Bell in the head and two entered in one of his sho- entered one of his shoulders. Mrs. Bell 31 had wounded herself super- superficially with the first shot and with a second bullet pierced her spine. Authorities indicated that both of Mrs. Bell's wounds were in the chest area. The pistol had been registered to Bell. One official pointed out that a shotgun and a rifle along with ammunition was also in the home. The pistol was a six-shot weapon, indicating that the mother had reloaded the gun. Authorities believe the shooting occurred late Friday night or early Saturday morning. Re- relatives said the Bell family had planned to go on a fishing trip Friday night, but then postponed it until Saturday. The Bells were natives of the Crescent area in, southeast, southern, in southeastern uh, Saratoga County. The bodies were removed to the Ellis Hospital in Schenectady where autopsies were performed. The funeral services will be announced will be announced <laughs> by the Hawk Funeral Home in, Sh- in Schenectady. Saratoga County Coroner Harold L. Hall last night issued a verdict of murder in the husband and children's death and suicide in Mrs. Bell's death. Heading the investigation was Captain S.A. Chieko of the BCI in Loudonville headquarters for, the, for Troop G. Assisting were Captain G.R. G. Abar, Inspector Harvey Labar, and several troopers from the Malta substation. I always remembered growing up driving by that house, but not really knowing the details of the story. So it's great to have the actual, um, the actual article, the original article, to be able to read. Next, I had a Clifton Park story from David Pitkin's book, Ghosts of the Northeast. It's entitled The Clock. How nice. A present from Scotland, Ed Shotmeyer and his wife Mary, were, were as happy to have daughter Susan and her husband Harold back home from Navy duty as they were to receive the unique gift. Harold had been assigned to, to a Navy intelligent post near Aberdeen for years, and when his tour of duty ended, he and Susan spent a few days scouring Scotland's antique shops for presents. They found three beautiful antique grandfather clocks and brought one to Edgar and Mary's home in Clifton Park, New York. The Schottmeyers placed the timepiece in their foyer. When Edgar prepared to leave home the next morning, on his way to the General Electric Company in Schenectady, he noticed the front door in the clock cabinet stood open. Absent-mindedly, he pushed it shut. Next day, preparing to leave, he found the clock door open again. He took a moment to examine the latching mechanism and noticed that friction between the door and its casing was supposed to keep it closed. He secured the door again and left for work. By the third morning, Edgar knew something was strange edgar knew something strange was taking place an expert machinist at ge for over 30 years he had little tolerance for mechanisms that didn't operate properly nevertheless he left the clock door ajar for a few months until he found time to examine it in greater detail in his cellar workshop he carefully removed the clock on top and checked its works he hadn't started the device since it arrived at his visher road home though his initial examination suggested flawless operation. In the vertical section of the cabinet, he inspected the weights and chains that turned the clock. The almost 300-year-old mechanism was only slightly corroded. He pulled the chain and the clock began ticking. Oh, okay, so it just needed a cleaning, he chuckled. Removing the clockwork, chains, and weights from the cabinet, he dusted and oiled them. Standing the wooden case upright on the shop floor, he noticed a small keyhole in the door had no key so he crafted one now with the door locked he retired to bed in the middle of the night a crash resounded from the cellar seizing a flashlight he hurried down for a look the cabinet had somehow toppled on its face on the floor he set up the case once more with the key in the lock but leaving the door ajar he never locked the case again the tall cabinet needed another repair a broken or missing wooden decoration on top figuring the entire project would be time consuming he packed the he packed the works in the cardboard boxes and moved them to his barn until he could invest the time in restoration then he hauled the cabinet out to the barn and stood it facing a wall to prevent another crash one thing after another interfered with the restoration and it was almost two years before he could resume his tinkering during that period, he retired from GE and spent his time researching Grandfather Clocks. He looked; it, His looked like European Grandfather Clocks from the 1690s. His son-in-law had told him the Scottish antique dealer had originally acquired it from an old castle. After retiring, able to devote his full time to the clock, he brought it back to his workshop. He remembers that's when the strange events began again. Originally designed with three finials or ornamental tops, two were missing when it came into Edgar's possession. After re-gluing all loose surface decorations and attaching them with square nails matching the original craftsmanship, he turned his attention to making finials on his wood lathe. Unable to find fine grain oak wood, such as they had in Scotland, he substituted locust wood installing the new finials on their dowel receptacles he went he went contentedly upstairs to bed he slumbered only a short time when somebody shook him awake and a voice warned those finials are not right they should be made in the shape of a flame that was the end of the message (laughs) curt and to the point mary was still asleep and, and it wasn't her voice. That's when I had a thought, he said. Not, not really a regular thought, but all I could think of is that it was a thought injection that came from an outside of myself. He returned to sleep, puzzling over the source of information as he drifted off the next day recognizing that there was some intelligence attached to the antique he began relating the finials this time making three in a design different from the remaining one when which he now considered an unoriginal substitute not completely satisfied with the result as he wasn't sure how to interpret flame shaped he installed the new pieces and glued them into position Carrying the clock upstairs, he set it in the corner of their living room. Making sure the cabinet was completely level, he pulled the chain inside, starting the clock. It ran for just two minutes and then stopped. He wound it some more, and again, it ran for just two minutes. Looking for some item jammed in the mechanism, he found nothing amiss. Turning off the light, he went to bed. In a repetition of the previous night's visitation, he was shaken awake by some unknown force or person. The stirrup is bent, the voice observed tersely, and then fell silent. As he had never heard that term, he researched books on clockworks at the local library. In a clock encyclopedia, he found a mechanism almost like his and noted that there was a metal piece called a stirrup through which the pendulum swung. Examining that part of his clock mechanism, he indeed found it slightly bent. When he straightened the imperfection, the clock ran perfectly and continuously. Edgar had made his successful career working with objects measured by a micrometer and milled to the thousandths of an inch. Voices that came in the night, however accurate, or clock cases that unlocked or overturned themselves distressed him. Calling his daughter, Susan, he and Mary explained that the clock caused him too much commotion and they wanted to put it up for sale. Susan agreed and they took it to an antique dealer at a local shopping mall. The antique dealer was fascinated with the clock, accepted it and received many inquiries from potential buyers. The dealer's assistant, however, was was a disbeliever. Ghosts were a lot of hooey in his estimation. All these things go as these things go often go. The assistant had to work alone in the shop one night. He heard the store's front door bell jingle, indicating the entry of a customer. Looking up, he saw the door still closed and no customer. A few minutes later, the scenario repeated, except this time the front door opened. As before, no one had entered the shop. A shiver ran up his spine as he was unprepared to confront, confront invisible customers. The next day, a man, a man entered the shop to examine the grandfather clock. As he stood in front of the cabinet the shop owner related he looked as if he were about to have a seizure the ashen man quickly fled later that day another customer entered gave the clock a cursory examination paid in cash and carried it away nobody except the present owner knows what has become of the old castle clock one thing we can be sure of it isn't sitting quietly in its new home in all likelihood it will continue to be rebellious until someone either soothes its restless spirit or returns it to the highland mists and moors from which it came. I have never thought about a clock that much in my life before. <laughs> Next, I wanted to mention a few, um, some fun, spooky events that are near Clifton Park as well. A lot of these have unfortunately ended for this season, but they're just fun to know about. The first one is Pumpkin Glow and Light Show drive Through at the Elms Family Farm in Boston Spa. Halloween experience of a pumpkin wonderland filled with thousands of hand-carved illuminated jack-o'-lanterns. The next is, and I think this is probably the most well-known in our area, the Double M Haunted Hayride. The Double M Haunted Hay Rides are right off of, I believe, exit 12 in Boston, 11 or 12 in Boston Lake, and they have a really, really great, um, scary hayride experience. The third is the Field of Horrors, which I mentioned in my last uh, episode where my best friend Kevin and I went, um, that's over in Troy, and that had the five haunted houses, two Awesome big bonfires, carnival food, definitely fun. I didn't think I was gonna get scared at all. And two of the five I screamed and ran, actually, physically ran out of. The next one is ha- The Hollowed Harvest. The Hollowed Harvest is at the Altamont Fair- Fairgrounds. It's a Halloween attraction featuring stunning landscapes and larger than life displays made of thousands of jack o' lanterns. The next one is How Caverns. The Underworld. A lot of us know How Caverns, but I actually also didn't realize that they had an attraction called The Underworld. Starting in September of this year, actually, How Caverns transformed into How Caverns The Underworld, a fully immersive cave haunt featuring an underground boat ride below the Earth's sur- surface. Although How Caverns has hosted Halloween themed events before, this one is expected to take guests on an unforgettable journey. And lastly, Nightmares at Liberty Ridge Farm. Nightmares at Liberty Ridge Farm has various haunted attractions and they will bring your worst fears to life. They're located in nearby Scaticoke. It includes a haunted houses, a haunted corn maze, a haunted forest, and more. So those are always fun. And I know, obviously, a lot of them are done for the season, but they're good to know about for next year. Next, since this is a more personal episode for me, I figured I would share another haunted story of my own that actually happened in Clifton Park. So it's only it's almost six years later, and this is still really hard for me to talk about. It's hard for me for a number of reasons. Hard because mostly it sounds like something only a crazy person would say. And I always felt embarrassed to talk about it with anyone in my life since no one I knew at that time was sensitive to energy, like at all. Like absolutely not, no sensitivity. <laughs> they all led normal, insomnia-less, and productive, happy lives. Like I've mentioned, I've always struggled with the anxiety of feeling energy and scopa my whole life, so when all this happened, I felt extremely lost. My husband and I moved into an apartment in one of the older parts of Clifton Park, off of Cemetery Road. It's named for the incredibly old, stoic, and spooky-as-fuck cemetery located right on it, which is actually right off of old Route 146, an important route in the history of the area. We were so happy to be out of my parents' house after almost two years of living there, getting back on our feet after moving home from Europe. Promptly upon moving in, we were welcomed with open arms by several of the neighbors who said they were so happy to have normal people finally. One explained the girl who had been living there over the period about of a year slowly became estranged and worrisome to them. Apparently, as the months went by, she began having lengthy, nonsensical conversations with herself the neighbors directly under her could hear. It culminated one day with her turning on all of the faucets in the house, flooding the apartment. When the police came for her, the neighbors said she was dragged out naked, kicking and screaming about about how she was going to drown herself. Of course, my first reaction was thinking how that energy must have been pretty toxic. I was so happy to have this apartment. We had things we hadn't had in so long. Laundry, a studio for me, things were so wonderful for a while. This was my late 20s and still the time of my life when I was working two jobs just to get by. I was busy but really loved having space for the things I loved. We would we would have friends over and I distinctly remember them commenting on how comfortable and inviting the space was. I think I furnished the whole apartment with three free or thrifted things so it always made me laugh when big burly guys would come over and suddenly make comments that you, you would think only Martha Stewart would about the success of the decor. I only mention all of this because to me it still really scares me how drastic the change was in the atmosphere when it happened. Not only was it a place of my own but it was also resoundingly known as a safe happy place to chill and hang out among our friends. That all changed. I'm not sure how long after we moved in it all started but I would guess about six to eight months. I had set up my studio in the second bedroom and was so happy to have that place that as a place to create the issue I started to have was severe scope athesia but this time it was different I started to feel watched so closely and with such intensity I began to see things I hadn't before I have always been able to tell if the energy around is male or female and this time it was no different there was a distinct male energy who I started to feel and at first it felt like any other time as it happened before, but then it escalated to me sensing and seeing a shadow figure but always out of the corner of my eye. The worst was I would feel the staring happening and when I would glance over in the direction that I felt it, I would get these awful fleeting images of the male looking at me in that spot. There were two spots where that where it was the worst. Anytime I was at my kitchen sink, the doorway to the hall was to my left. I clearly felt this energy peering around the corner, just staring at me. I started to get petrified to look in that direction. The second spot was on my couch. Sitting on my couch gave me direct view to my bedroom, which I would sense and feel this male sitting on the edge of my bed, staring staring so intensely at me straight through the hallway. I started being too scared to even sit on my own couch. Now, mind you, as this was all happening, the other element to my fear was my fear of going crazy. I knew I had been validated before that I was sensitive to things, but this started to really scare me. The fear took over my ability to talk about it with anyone. I never spoke about anything that I felt or swore I saw with anyone, not even my best friend. One day I was curled up in the far corner of my couch reading and I started to doze off. I was awakened by a heavy feeling on my left side and then I felt breathing in my left ear and my nickname spoken, which is Julie. I felt the breath hit my ear as my name was said. This scared me so much, the voice sounded familiar which scared me even more. No no one since I was little really called me that so that freaked me out as well. It was at this point that I started to being too afraid to be in the house alone. I found myself waiting for hours and hours outside in my car if my husband wasn't home. I had also developed a habit to help me feel safe in the home. Whenever I entered the home alone, I was too afraid to look up. From the moment that I turned the front doorknob, I would keep my eyes glued to my feet until I walked around the entire place and turned every single light on in every room. Once every light was on, I would have to psych myself into looking up, which a shot of panic, which let out a shot of panic every time I finally did look up so then it started happening slowly over a few months my husband's demeanor completely changed he was angry most of the time but in a solemn way he started talking less and had no interest in doing anything really ever we basically became roommates that had never happened before At this point, about eight months had gone by and I was in such a bad place mentally because of it. One day I was in bed trying to relax since I was not sleeping well most nights. I was laying on my stomach with my legs extended to the end of the bed. Then I felt it. Something that felt like two paws, distinctly paws, not feet, but only two. Jumped up on the back of my calves and walked right up the back of my legs, up my back, and then what felt like settled around my neck. It felt like two big paws, like St. Bernard-sized, walking up and then when it got to my shoulders, they dissipated and the feeling of a warm blanket curled around my neck. It felt staticky, like when you touch something and get a shock. I lifted my head because I was so scared and I thought I needed to move, but the only thing I could bring myself to do was lift up my head. I felt the staticky warmth for about 60 seconds around my neck and then it slowly faded away. This experience in particular was another real big mental fuck for me. I felt like I was going completely crazy. That happy, warm feeling was completely gone in the home. Then as things seemed to be at the worst, They got worse. (laughs) I started waking up with rashes covering my body, then hives started too. I was panicked. I I have extremely sensitive skin, but I've never had issues like that before. I changed to all sensitive skin products, washed my sheets twice as often, but nothing helped. I was wearing long sleeves to work because I needed the money and couldn't afford to miss a shift, and I knew I would be sent home if they saw it because I worked in the food industry. Then one morning I woke up because I felt something on my face. Something scurried across my face. I immediately knew. We had bed bugs. As soon as I realized, I sat up and saw them all over. It was like they happened overnight, which is what I came to learn. They are there, but very quickly they become a complete infestation. The stress that ensued was completely overwhelming. I felt so alone. The financial burden was so extraordinary, I was completely lost. I learned hard and fast that living with this was a huge burden. Everything I owned that they could infest had to be treated, stored, and constantly retreated and recleaned. The shit ranged from having to dry my clothes for 30 minutes every day right before I left, packing all of my things, throwing out so much stuff, constantly bleaching, and the worst, bringing my fish back and forth to my job like a crazy person since the treatment from the from the um, company that I had paid was toxic for them. My husband had turned into a completely different person by this point. His flat out refusal to help in any way, financially or with all of the work baffled me. He was also refusing to leave. Living with the bugs seemed to do nothing for him. In fact, weirdly, they generally attacked only me, which was very odd. I was covered in bites almost constantly while he had almost none. I asked my parents for help, They said, too bad. The entire experience sent me back almost $7,000. For someone working two jobs at that time, neither of which were really career-based, I was not making enough money to be able to afford this. The worst part was that I barely slept. As soon as you sleep, they come out. My fear constantly woke me up. It was fucking awful. I came to the realization that I would have to move out and leave my husband. I was working 80 to 100 hour weeks just to have enough to get a cheap apartment, but it took almost three months for me to do that. 12 weeks of living like that. It was absolutely awful. Not knowing what was going on, with myself, with the apartment, and then now this situation, both financial, financially and health wise, really scared me. So I tell you all of this because at the same time that all of this was happening, something happened that blew my mind. One day at my job, my coworker's girlfriend came in. I barely knew her. She walked over to my desk and she said, are you having trouble at home like you're scared? I said yes. I was completely surprised. Then she said rather quickly, Do you not look up when you're home like you only look at the floor? I said yes and I got chills. And then she said, And do you turn on every light in the house before you do anything else? I answered yes. I was so scared. How could she know that? I didn't tell a single person. She then turned extremely serious and almost yelled at me, telling the mail, telling me the mail that she knew I knew was in the home was my brother who passed away. How could she even know about that spirit in the house? Personally, I do not think it was him, him. And to this day, I still don't. Needless to say, I was in complete shock. How could she know any of this? She explained she was a medium. I saw her girlfriend at work every day, and slowly the woman started coming in more often. I was in utter disbelief. I don't understand how she knew, so this piqued my curiosity because in three simple questions, she had validated that I wasn't fucking crazy. I told her everything, everything in the apartment, and then also my history of feeling energy. She offered to teach me and show me things. They felt like my only friends during that time. However, her teachings came with warnings. She warned me about crossing into a realm that could either shatter my perception of reality or possibly allow negative energy around me. One warning always stuck out to me. She told me to never sleep on my back since when you're sleeping it's commonly known within the paranormal field that this is when you are the most susceptible. Verbatim, she told me if I do explore some of the avenues in which she was proposing that I better be prepared. She said things will come in the night and they will hover over me. She only ever referred to them as they. She told me the reason she came to me the first day is because my energy was more powerful than most she's ever felt. She said it had been 25 years since she met anyone that had the amount that I had. I mention this because a medium I recently went to told me almost the exact same thing about a month ago. She referred to it as shamanistic levels. At the same time, I started seeking out any local mediums that I could just get a quick session with without disclosing what was going on, as I was curious if anyone else could give me any sort of insight. So I found one down in Latham. By the end of the session, I was feeling like I hadn't gotten much out of it, but then all of a sudden, the medium asked me if I was working with a witch who practiced dark magic. I was completely taken aback, but I did tell her I was working with someone that I considered to be a medium, and and explained to her if you have the practices that I had been taught and explained to her that she had taught me practices, but not actually tried them because I was still too scared. The medium got up and left the room To my surprise, and I could hear her tell the next person waiting for the next appointment that unfortunately she was not going to be able to see them and that they would have to reschedule. She came back into the room and said, I'm not going to charge you, but I want to continue to talk to you. She said under no circumstances should I do any of the things I was considering, any of the things this woman was proposing. And then she said something that scared me to my core she said do you want to wake up during the night and have them hovering over you i don't think i've ever been more fucking scared again they were only referred to as them or they i'm still too fucking scared to ask as to what they are it was at that time that I decided it was best to stop working with anyone. It also coincided with me finally being able to move out of my apartment and into my own place, leaving my husband behind. I will never, ever forget the feeling the first night I slept in the new place. I barely had anything, and I bought the bed off of the girl who moved out. I finally slept good for the first time in so many months. I was in an apartment that didn't have half of what I had in my old one, but I felt so much better. The energy, energy was finally back to normal. I felt safe and happy, happy and finally could get on with my life. Another huge part of all of this that I really hesitate to talk about was the details about what I was told and taught from the medium that approached me. I still don't honestly think I can talk about it. I've actually had a strong feeling that I shouldn't be talking about it really ever. What I saw and learned still scares me. Briefly put, I was taught how to see souls, how to open up a portal, the stages of death, amongst many other dark things, but extremely powerful. This entire experience changed my life. I had another significant experience growing up, but it was a true haunting. But something like this shook my reality. If anything, it just added to my consuming fear of the paranormal. Needless to say, say, I still battle with the reality that all of this is there every single day and I either try not to think about it or I'm worried it will catch me off guard. Talking about this gives me chills, so I'm gonna go ahead and stop now. (laughs) On a good note, my husband moved home and a few months after I left, and once he was out of that apartment, he went back to being his old, happier self. He moved in with me in my new place a few months later. Well, that's all for today, guys. As always, thanks for listening. I wanted to mention a few of the places that I got some of my information from, cnweekly.com and vdocuments.site, as well as David Pitkin's book, Ghosts of the Northeast. Don't forget to keep your eye out for upcoming episodes dropping weekly on Sundays. I have some fantastic guests lined up that I'll be recording in the next few weeks. Just a reminder, as always, we need stories, so please submit your story. I want to share them. And don't forget to check us out at The Haunted, at the haunted 518 on Instagram, Haunted 518 on Facebook, and of course, haunted518.com. You can subscribe for updates there as well. You can always just email us your story at thehaunted518 at gmail.com. And please rate and subscribe. That is so helpful for us to be found. So until next time, happy haunting.